2: Follow the global story from the BBC, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech and this is the Tech Stuff News episode for February 2nd, 2021. A Tuesday, as I am led to understand. Our top story for today's episode goes back to the ongoing drama with Wall Street, hedge funds, and a group of independent investors using platforms like Discord and Reddit to organize and drive up share prices for companies like GameStop. So, as a quick reminder... The subreddit Wall Street Bets took up the cause of buying shares of GameStop in an effort to counteract how some hedge fund companies were attempting to short sell that stock. Short selling is when you borrow shares from somebody else, a different investor, and you sell those shares that are not yours at market value. Then you hope the price goes down so that you can swoop in and you know buy back those borrowed shares for less than what you sold them for. And then you return the borrowed shares to the person you borrowed them from, and you get to pocket the difference. The internet crusaders are buying up stocks, which makes the stock price go higher, and that starts to pressure those investors and companies that were attempting to short the stock. Because the higher the stock price goes, the more money those investors will lose when it comes time to buy back shares and return them to the parties that they borrowed them from. The motivations for this action among these independent investors varies. Uh, It ranges from those who are hoping they can get rich quick by jumping on a trend, those would be kind of like speculators, to those who harbor a grudge against the hedge funds in general, which typically represent the interests of people who are, let me see, let me check my notes here, um, right, filthy rich. Like, really filthy rich. So a short squeeze is a way to really stick it to these funds, which could stand to lose billions of dollars as a consequence. In fact, that has already happened with a couple of these hedge funds that have tried to cut their losses and get out before they saw even more money lost. Because with a short sell, the higher that market price goes, the more money the short sellers are going to lose when it comes time to return that stock. There's no limit To how much money they can lose. Because the stock price can just keep going up, 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 and up. There's no there's no bottom there. However, this all hinges on the investors being able to buy up those shares of GameStop as those shares are hitting the market in order to keep this trend going. And that's getting harder to do. Last Thursday, the day of our last news episode, in fact. The mobile stocks trading app Robinhood angered users when it put a temporary block on them, preventing them from buying shares in various companies that the internet investors had targeted, including GameStop, but also including some other companies like AMC Theaters. Uh, they, They could still sell stocks, but they couldn't buy them. Now, at one point, Robinhood had a buying ban on 50 different companies. Though as of Monday, February 1st, 2021, that list has been whittled down to eight. And yeah, GameStop is still on that list. The move prompted users to point out the inherent irony that a company naming itself after the legendary character Robin Hood, who literally robbed from the rich to give to the poor, was preventing average investors from, you know, doing the equivalent action in the modern day through the stock market. Investors have filed numerous lawsuits, like more than 30 of them at the federal level, against the company. At the heart of the issue is what led Robin Hood to level that ban on users. It doesn't help Robinhood's case that among its sources of revenue is a hedge fund called Citadel, leading some to speculate that Robinhood was facing pressure from revenue sources that stood to lose a lot of money if they were caught up in a short squeeze. Citadel, for its part, denies that it played any role in Robinhood's decision-making. This is building into a pretty compelling narrative that may or may not be realistic, and the narrative goes like this. Hedge funds that are attempting to short sell companies aren't just betting that those companies' shares are going to drop in price. These hedge funds, according to the narrative, actively campaign for that to happen. So, in other words, the independents, the investors on the subreddit in Wall Street Bets, are saying that these big hedge funds are using leverage and market forces to help companies fail. And then they reap in rewards through this short-selling practice. These companies may or may not have failed on their own, but the story that the investors are telling is that the hedge funds are actively working to cause companies to fail with only an eye on profit and no care about the consequences a failed company brings along with it, including the consequences to that company's employees and its customers. And so turning a short sell around on these hedge funds is being portrayed within these communities as an act of heroism, that buying up the stock isn't meant to be a way to turn these investors into wealthy people. You're not supposed to be buying it to make money, but rather as a way to act as a check on these hedge funds so they can't set out to harm these companies just for profit. Now, I would suggest that this narrative, while a good one, isn't necessarily the whole truth of the matter. I think there's a lot of it in there. I don't think a lot of truth is in that narrative, but I also think there are a lot of other complicating factors at play. One of those is that sometimes a short sell is really just a short sell. It's not an attempt to make a company fail. Sometimes companies are just in a bad place and sometimes the short sell recommendations are kind of an indicator, a warning flag And it tells other investors who might have shares in those companies that maybe they want to protect their money and they should probably sell off those shares if, in fact, that company really is in danger. It's not manufactured danger. It's something is wrong with that company. And then there are the ripple effects of these kind of events, which can cause further market disruption. I think that As in most things in life, the situation is actually really complicated. There are no cut-and-dried heroes or villains, but speaking from my own personal standpoint, it is way easier for me to side with the people who are not billionaires. I'm just saying. Also, full disclosure, I don't own any stock in any of these companies. In related news, that narrative I was just talking about really must be compelling because Deadline, that is the news journal that covers all things Hollywood, reports that MGM has acquired rights to a book proposal. Not a book, but a proposal for a book called The Antisocial Network by Ben Mesrick. The book, as I'm sure you have all guessed, will be about this GameStop share price saga and Wall Street bets and hedge funds and about the story of independent investors on the internet who are taking aim at the big, entrenched, fat cat hedge fund managers. Mesrick proposed the book and his agent was able to shop around the proposal, not even a manuscript, and nothing's been fully written out yet, and boom, MGM options it for a movie. Now, folks... Both of my parents are published authors, and I just have to say, this is not the way things typically work. Now, that being said, Mesrick already has a track record. He wrote the book that would become the inspiration for the film The Social Network. You know, the Academy Award-winning movie. So do keep that in mind, that while this means that MGM has the rights to make a movie about this idea for a book it doesn't necessarily guarantee that a movie will ever actually come out. Now, if it does, it's going to take some time for that to happen. I mean, it hasn't even been written yet, let alone had a director attached or cast it or gone into pre-production or anything. And between now and whenever all that stuff can happen, a lot more might evolve and we might see a lot more happen during the fallout of this initial story. So I can't promise you that in a year or two you'll be watching something like I don't know, Tom Holland leading a a group of upstart investors online against someone like, I don't know, let's say Richard Dreyfuss representing the head of a hedge fund. Clearly, I should be the casting director for this movie is what I'm saying. Now that I say it all out loud, I kind of want to see it. Well, let's stick with the Hollywood approach to the tech world, or at least in this case, the tech-adjacent world, the Hollywood Reporter says that Apple TV is producing a series called We Crashed. All one word, the big W, big C, We Crashed, based off a podcast from Wondery about the real estate slash kinda sorta but not really tech company WeWork. Or to be more specific, the We Company, which is the parent company to WeWork along with a couple of related ventures. You know, that's the company that would get hold of office space in various markets and then rent that office space out to various freelancers and companies that didn't already have a physical space of their own. The Hollywood Reporter says that Jared Leto has been cast as Adam Neumann and Anne Hathaway will be Rebecca Neumann. And the Neumanns are leaders in the Wee Company, or at least they used to be, with Adam as the former CEO of the Wee Company and Rebecca was a, and still is, a founding partner Fun bit of trivia here, Rebecca is also cousin to Gwyneth Paltrow, and it seems like some of the more new-age-ish, wacky beliefs run in that family. Okay, I admit it, that is unfair. They don't run in the family. They positively gallop, to steal a joke from Arsenic and Old Lace. Adam Neumann previously made millions of dollars by buying up real estate and then leased those buildings to WeWork. You know, the company he was CEO of. When the Wee company filed for an IPO in 2019, the filing contained a lot of unusual stuff in it, like an inscrutable hierarchy diagram that had companies nested inside other companies and no real useful information inside of it. There was also a succession plan that seemed more geared toward making the Wee company a Neumann dynasty rather than... You know, an independent company. I would do a full episode about the Wee Company and its trials and tribulations, including how that IPO never actually happened, uh, how Adam Neumann was pressured by the board of directors to step down, complete with a nearly $2 billion exit package, and how the company's valuation has plummeted by nearly 90% since that planned IPO. But for one thing... WeWork, despite the way it branded and marketed itself, is not really a tech company. And for another, if you want to read an incredible account about that IPO, you need to go to The Verge and read Elizabeth Lepato's article, WeWork isn't a tech company, it's a soap opera, because that article is equally informative and wildly entertaining. I highly recommend it. And I'll conclude this segment of our news episode with an update on the ongoing story about employees at Google attempting to unionize. I mentioned last week that the Alphabet Workers Union, or AWU, which is really hard to say because of that W-U combination. can I just say triple U? That would just make it easier? Anyway... The AWU announced it was joining an international alliance of unions connected to Google called Alpha Global, this being unions all around the world that are related to Google or Alphabet. The problem is that the United States members of this organization said they didn't know about any alliance until after the announcement of it had been published by The Verge, and that meant they didn't have a chance to vote on the matter or even consider it or even be told about it. What's more, the press release cited by the Verge had comments attributed to AWU leader Parul Kuhl, who says she never actually made the comments that appear in the press release. What followed was confusion, and along with confusion came some mistrust, which is, you know, pretty common. And if you can't trust democratically elected leaders to actually represent those who elected those leaders, everything falls apart, which really we're seeing play out in arenas much larger than the AWU, but we'll leave it at that. Part of the problem appears to be that the Communications Workers of America, or CWA, pushed out that press release prematurely and with a false attribution to cool, regarding those comments. Now there are discussions within the AWU about whether the union should disassociate from the CWA entirely, and the person responsible for the press release is no longer working with the AWU teams. If I were making a bird's-eye view observation, I would say it looks like those organizing the union are relying heavily on other organizations that have proven to be a bad match, and that this in turn has actually threatened the formation of the union itself. I'm sure I'll be returning to this story again in the future. My hope is that they are able to continue their efforts to unionize. But when we see stuff like this happen, it really can cause a great deal of damage, particularly in trust. I mean, you're asking employees to trust that the union will take care of them. When something like this happens, that trust gets eroded. We've got a lot more stories to talk about in today's episode. But first, let's take a quick break.
1: inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a beginning available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit at and for details
0: we're back did you guys know there was a pandemic going on Well, it continues to be a dominating force for news in general, and one of the stories here in the United States has been about how badly the country has handled the process of distributing and administering vaccines. It's a pretty big mess, with each state in the country largely left to determine its own processes, and there being a a general lack of clarity across the nation. For example, here in Georgia, we are in what is called Phase 1A+ meaning the state is currently administering the vaccine to healthcare workers, long-term care facilities, citizens who are 65 or older and their caregivers, uh, and first responders. Uh, After that will come phase 1B, which includes essential workers, then 1C, which will include people who have medical conditions that increase the risk of them contracting a severe case of COVID-19. And then presumably... Well, come the rest of us. But there's no actual timeline associated with that plan. There's just a description of phases, but it doesn't even have a a prediction of when we'll move from phase 1A plus to phase 1B. You can search to see where you could go to get vaccinated, but that doesn't mean that you would be eligible for a vaccination. You just know where the locations are that are administering vaccines. So that's about it. Now, that's just Georgia, and every state in the U.S. is different. But Georgia's also home for the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC. And the CDC has played a big part in why the vaccine rollout has not gone so smoothly for thousands and thousands of people, and this is what relates it to technology. It's because of a website called the Vaccine Administration Management System, or VAMS, V-A-M-S, Uh, So this was developed for the princely sum of $44 million. According to the MIT Technology Review, numerous states that had planned to lean on VAMs as the official way to manage vaccine rollout didn't go so well. Things have gone pear-shaped. A lot of people have reported various bugs or glitches in the system that have failed to actually make appointments with facilities. So a patient goes on VAMs, goes through the process of making an appointment, appears to be confirmed for that appointment, they go and show up to the physical location, and that's when they're told, hey, we have no record of you. There's no actual appointment on our books, so we can't see you. In other cases, the system appears to cancel appointments without rhyme or reason, although the CDC says this is due not to a flaw in VAMS, but rather user error. Uh, there are also reports that it locks people out as they try to use the system, or it only logs them in as a patient, not an administrator, and that's a big problem for those who are trying to actually administer the system. You know, it's also not just about creating uh, appointments, but but managing that information and tracking that information, so you know who has received the vaccine, who needs to come in for a follow up, all that sort of stuff. So it's really a failure of the whole system. And the whole point of VAMS was to take the burden off of individual states so that they didn't have to build out their own management systems. But these various issues have led a lot of states to kind of do that anyway, rather than rely on something that other states have said has been a pretty big mess. Some local governments, like counting governments in Florida, have even repurposed online services like Eventbrite, you know, the website you would use in order to send out invitations to your kid's birthday party. They're using that in order to make appointments, which y'all, that is messed up. Moreover, the MIT piece, which is titled What Went Wrong with America's $44 Million Vaccine Data System, lays out more problems. For example, the layout of the VAM site, even when it's working correctly, doesn't sound like it was made to be friendly for senior patients. And since seniors are the early focus of a lot of the vaccine programs, that's a huge problem. And it also points out the overall issue of creating systems that are accessible to a wide audience. This stuff is important. There are companies that have entire departments dedicated to this kind of stuff. And as the piece in the MIT Technology Review points out, There's a real problem with the procurement process when government offices are selecting companies to carry out these big projects, and that the process itself can eliminate a lot of different valid choices from consideration, even if those choices are more suitable. They may be more suitable, but because they don't fit these other criteria that are required in the procurement process... They aren't even eligible for consideration. Clearly, managing such a massive effort is a huge challenge, and there are bound to be big problems along the way. But it seems like these challenges are made all the more difficult because of the nature of how the US government partners with the private sector in general, and the tech sector in particular. By the way, this sort of thing is non-partisan. We see messes like this no matter who happens to be in charge, because... The policies themselves are so restrictive that it almost doesn't make a a difference whether or not you have a conservative uh, administration in power or a liberal one. The policies themselves persist, and that ends up being an issue. And speaking of the U.S. government, one of the effects of an administration changing hands is that sometimes Long-term projects get disrupted, and one of those projects appears to be NASA's planned return to the moon. Under former President Trump, NASA was to aim to get astronauts back on the moon by 2024, including the first woman astronaut to go to the moon. Now, that timeline was pretty ambitious and aggressive. I wouldn't go so far as to say it was impossible, But it was going to be really hard to do and really expensive. And there is uncertainty about where the plan now stands in the wake of Joe Biden winning the U.S. presidency. With a new administration in charge, there are questions about whether NASA will get the funding needed to stay on target, particularly for that 2024 goal. We're already seeing some results of this, with NASA pushing back when it will announce lunar lander contracts. Originally, NASA was to announce which two of the three companies that had been under consideration would be awarded a a pair of contracts for Lunar Lander. So one contract per company. We don't know which which two of the three were going to get these. We were supposed to find out later this month in February. Now NASA has told the contractors that the announcement has been pushed back to April 30th. This was probably a necessary step. The agency had requested a budget of $3.2 billion in order to stay the course, but in December 2020, Congress approved a much more modest budget of $850 million. And yeah, it feels weird to call $850 million modest, but then we are also talking about trying to keep people alive and safe as we shoot them off to the moon, and that ain't cheap. We're still waiting to hear who the Biden administration will choose to head up the agency and what priorities the administration will stress. It's all but certain that the Artemis project of returning to the moon is going to get pushed back beyond 2024 if it sticks around as an official project in the first place. And I have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, I feel like the initial timeline was probably unrealistic and you really have to define what are your goals besides just going there. Going there is great. It's really a a fantastic achievement. I don't want to downplay that. But is that the best use of resources? Uh, But on the other hand, I also think that a moon mission does have a lot of potential. You can find ways to perhaps harvest resources from the moon, though that's a very delicate matter. You have to figure out a way of doing that that isn't too damaging or dangerous or uh, will have long-lasting consequences but then you can also pursue a challenge that would undoubtedly inspire countless others to really dream big and become the next generation of pilots and engineers and scientists. That's a, that's a big thing in itself. So like I said, I do feel, uh, complicated about this. Moving on, Microsoft, which has managed to dodge a bullet in the United States as the US government has discussed the fate of big companies like Facebook, Amazon, Google, and Apple, is going under the magnifying glass over in the EU. Antitrust regulators have until March 5th to decide if Microsoft's proposed acquisition of ZeniMax Media is acceptable or if the EU regulators will prevent it or require concessions before the acquisition can move forward. As it stands, the deal is valued at $7.5 billion. Holy cow. Makes that $44 million website really look like small potatoes, right? So what is it that ZeniMax does? I mean, it's got to be important for that kind of money, right? Well, ZeniMax is the parent company of Bethesda, the video game studio responsible for things like the Elder Scrolls games, the Fallout titles, and the Doom titles. Though, the stories behind Fallout and Doom stretch back to other studios before Bethesda, but that's that's a matter for a different episode. And yeah, video games are a huge business, and I don't want to downplay that. It's just one of those weird facts of life that I really find bizarre, that we're talking about money for a video game company acquisition that is orders of magnitude larger than the money that is put forward as part of an effort to administer vaccines against a deadly pandemic, But that's enough of me on my soapbox. I get it. You all don't need to hear it. If Microsoft's acquisition can move forward, it will put the company on more equal footing with Sony and the PlayStation platform. For a long time, one of the big strengths PlayStation has had against the Xbox platform is a list of really good exclusive titles. Now, there's a chance Microsoft would be able to create new titles with Bethesda's work that tie in with those those big popular franchises and have them be exclusive to Xbox and the Windows platform, as long as they don't end up like Fallout 76, which the gaming world at large is categorized as a, um, let's see here, it says here, a total disaster. Now, it's more likely that the games will still be available for Sony's console but that Microsoft will then include them with their Xbox Game Pass service. That's one of the big selling points for the Xbox series of consoles. Essentially, you subscribe to that, and you get access to dozens of different video game titles that are included in the subscription price, so you don't have to pay extra to get access to them. So that's probably where this is going, and and, and honestly, that's kind of the best of all worlds because Microsoft can still make money selling games that are going for a competitor's console while they also build up the library of games in their own exclusive subscription service. It's kind of a no-brainer, really. And we have a couple of short Facebook stories to mention. Three of them, actually. First up is the newly appointed Oversight Board at Facebook. This is an independent group that is reviewing Facebook's moderation policies, Ars Technica reports that this group recently ruled against four of the five substantive rulings that Facebook provided them. And reading over these rulings, I'm kind of floored. It's five different cases in which Facebook chose to remove a post for the interpretation of the post violating Facebook's rules. And the board agreed with four of those five decisions, but I'm not sure that I fully agree with the board in every case. Though, to be fair, I'm working from summaries of what these cases were. I don't have the full context. But it really illustrates how complicated moderation actually is and why it requires a lot of work. And it's not something you can just hand over to an algorithm. And by creating this independent oversight board, Facebook also kind of has an excuse when someone gets mad at a post that Facebook didn't take down. Because the oversight board is sort of setting the precedent, and Facebook can say, hey, we got an independent board of experts who make these decisions, so go blame those people. Now, related to that story is another one that Facebook is kind of navigating some super tricky territory when it comes to anti-Semitism and use of the term Zionist. This issue shows how difficult things can be due to context and language. For example, some Jewish people who criticize the Israeli government's policies use the term Zionist when talking about specific policies that they don't agree with. But there are others who use the term interchangeably with other terms, and they all end up being part of expressions of hate speech. And so this is a really challenging situation in which some uses of a word might fall into the category of hate speech, something that clearly violates Facebook's policies and should be removed. But in other cases, it's being used in a way where it's, a part of a legitimate criticism of Israeli government actions. When I say legitimate criticism, I mean sincere, as opposed to whether or not you agree with the point of that criticism. The Jewish Voices for Peace organization circulated a petition calling for Facebook to avoid classifying Zionist as hate speech outright. Facebook reps have said that the company allows the term when it comes to political discussions, but then removes it in cases where it's, quote, used as a proxy for Jews or Israelis in a dehumanizing or violent way end quote. And as I said, this is a really complicated matter, and I feel we're seeing the beginning of a lot of very difficult conversations within Facebook and between Facebook and its critics as more people demand that social networks take a firmer stance when it comes to moderating user content. And finally, the Wall Street Journal reports that internal memos within Facebook revealed that researchers had pointed out to executives that there was a rise of hate groups and misinformation campaigns in the summer of 2020, including calls to violence. So that doesn't look great, considering how extremists use platforms like Facebook to organize ahead of the assault on the U.S. Capitol. And it also doesn't look great for organizations like the FBI that at least initially stated that there just wasn't any real heads up of any issues, when in fact, it appears that there were a lot of warning signs months in advance. We have some more tech stories to cover in just a moment. But before we get to those, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do.
1: Naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time outs, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber lives like a Giganian Available wherever you'll get your podcast. Limited to availability in select areas. Visit slash hypergig for details.
0: We're back. Ford has announced that starting in 2023, the company's vehicles will incorporate Android Auto, and this is a six-year partnership Ford has made with Google. Android Auto is a platform for, well, I mean, it's kind of obvious, car systems, and it means that Ford vehicles will have certain Google apps like Maps and even Assistant incorporated into their entertainment systems. And I have to admit, that could be kind of neat. Being able to talk to your car to have it do things like give you directions or play your favorite station or give you an update on weather or make schedule changes to your calendar, all of that seems like a decent way to keep your eyes on the road instead of on your phone or on the dashboard of the car. The two companies also announced that they were forming a new R&D group called Team Upshift, which would explore all sorts of, of uses of technology in the car world, like Improving the experience of buying a car. Hey, you know, if I think, if this means that a salesperson doesn't get up and leave you waiting for half an hour to try and, you know, kind of put the screws to you, that's a good start. Anyone out there who's had the experience of buying a new car from a dealership likely has their share of really bad stories But the partnership is also going to look at stuff that happens behind the scenes with the aim to improve processes and manage supply chains and all sorts of stuff that customers rarely think about, but they really have a real impact on the bottom line of a business. And according to reps with the companies, there will be no harvesting of personal information. So you don't have to worry about Ford and Google logging every time you go to that greasy spoon diner you like, or if you happen to hit the comic book store every week. Or, you know, whatever it is other people do. Don't judge me. I like greasy food and I like comic books. Anyway, this could be an interesting partnership, but I do think it's good for people to ask tough questions about data management and privacy because we have seen how that information can be misused or even just collected and bartered without our knowledge or consent. And hey... That leads me well into the next story, which is that 60 Minutes reported that China may have stolen the personal data of around 80% of all adults in America. That is staggering. Imagine you're with a group of four friends. And for this hypothetical situation, we're saying that everyone's been vaccinated. It's all safe. Yay! Except you look around at your friends and you think, hey, Only one of us has not had their personal data stolen by China. That, I mean, yikes, guys. And the information stolen is personal information that apparently includes bio data, like DNA and stuff, which is truly wild. According to the International Business Times, the purpose of doing that kind of thing might be to feed that information into China's medical industry in an effort for that industry to dominate the global medical treatments and technologies markets, essentially giving China a scientific edge on all things medical, but, you know, without going through that whole nasty business of asking people for permission to harvest and use their personal and biological information. See? That's the kind of thing we have to be on the lookout for. And guys, if you were looking forward to going to Coachella, I have some bad news. For the third time since the pandemic started, Coachella is canceled. Coachella 2020 was supposed to happen in April of 2020, but by that point, the pandemic was in full bloom in the United States, and so the organizers postponed it to October 2020, That turned out to be a bit too ambitious as well, as we were sliding toward another terrible surge in COVID cases, and so 2020 was called a loss, and the plan was to hold Coachella 2021 in April. But, seeing as the vaccine rollout is likely to still be in the early stages for most of the population, even by that point in time, April isn't a guarantee either, and now the show has been cancelled. There are rumors that it might get pushed to October again, but as I record this, there's been no official word on that. Obviously, the live events industry has been absolutely hammered by COVID, and it appears that the vaccination rollout this year will really determine when we can expect some of those big events to return. So in the meantime, stay home if you can, keep social distancing, wash your hands, and be safe. Our last couple of stories are about Vidya Games, First up is the game everyone loves to dunk on for some pretty legitimate reasons, Cyberpunk 2077. The latest is that PC gamers should take some precautions before installing any mods. Now, for those not up on gaming lingo, mods are modifications. And in this case, it refers to stuff that's been programmed by other people who don't work for the video game company with the purpose of creating different effects or opening up new features once you download it and install it into the code of your game. Some games natively support mods and even have marketplaces where users can shop around for different types of mods. And a mod might make a game look better, or it might create weird and silly effects, or it might allow you to do stuff like make edits to the game while you're playing it, So that, you know, you don't have to do that irritating thing where you play a game to progress. I mean, come on, right? Who has time for that? Anyway, Forbes reported a subreddit post that indicated that there were some vulnerabilities in the PC version of the game that could allow for malicious mods to integrate with the game and then compromise the PC running the game. So you might think you're getting, you know, a cool mod that's going to make Keanu Reeves your best friend forever, BFFs. But in fact, it ends up creating a backdoor for a hacker to take over your computer. Apparently, there are some workarounds to protect your PC to patch those vulnerabilities on your own. But as of this recording, there is no official patch from the video game company CD Projekt to fix things. And finally, we have some good news. At least for Nintendo. The company had projected it would sell 24 million Nintendo Switch consoles in the current fiscal year, which lasts through March. So Nintendo's fiscal year doesn't follow the calendar year. However, the company has already sold 24.1 million units, and looking at the calendar, we still have a little bit to go before March is over. So that's prompted Nintendo to adjust its projection upward to 26.5 million units. Now, clearly, the pandemic has had a big effect with this, with lots of people buying a Switch console during lockdown. In fact, I'm one of those people because I bought one for my wife. And honestly, I should probably get one of my own because it looks like a lot of fun and she won't let me play it. Also, the fact that the company has exceeded its projected sales also helps explain why sometimes it can still be a challenge to find a Switch console in stock depending on where you live. Um... It's hard to find those in inventories at times. But good news for Nintendo. uh, And there's some big titles that are coming up in the the months ahead. That's what's really got them excited about the potential of hitting that 26.5 billion unit benchmark. So that's good for them. Beep, 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 beep. Breaking news. I had already finished recording this episode and just as I was about to jump into sending it off to super producer Tari, I saw the news today. Oh boy. And it's more of video game, so we're just tagging this on to the very end. Uh, apparently, Google is now shuttering its in-house Stadia Games Development Studio. That headline comes straight from CNET and Shelby Brown. So Shelby, big thanks to you for getting that out there just before I was going to send this off. It's awesome that I get to talk about this, uh, only in the sense that it is breaking news. It is sad. I'm also a Google Stadia user. I got a chance to get hold of a Stadia system, and it's kind of interesting. I haven't really played with it that much, to be honest, but I thought it was an interesting idea. However, Google has now decided that they're not going to really get into the business of developing video games they will instead continue to act as a platform supporting video games. So you can still have video games on the Stadia platform. It's just that Google won't be making any of those itself. So thought I would update that before this episode goes out because I had the chance to do so. Back to Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. All right, guys, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff News. We will be back on Thursday with more news episodes. Tomorrow, you will get a brand new episode of Tech Stuff proper. That one's going to be all about Discord. So if you're curious about the platform, I talk all about its history in tomorrow's episode. Be sure to tune into that. If you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, let me know. Discord was a user suggestion. Maybe you can make one of your own. The best way to get in touch with me is over on Twitter. The handle is Stuff H S W, and I'll talk to you again
2: work.
0: Zumo Play.